Welcome to the podcast of the River Anglican Church. It's the second week of Advent, and today we're talking about what the coming of Christ means for who God is, who we are, and how we live. Here's Jonathan. Well, good morning. Let's pray together as we um, sit under uh, God's Word and at His feet. Lord, uh, thank you for the privilege of even hearing your word. I remember the captives, Lord, when they returned and heard your word under Nehemiah, they wept. Lord, may we have that same kind of sense of privilege and expectation and excitement about just hearing your word. Nonetheless, Lord, embracing it. God, give us open hearts where there's unbelief, Lord, where there's a lack of faith, where there's people who are wounded or kind of jaded or sarcastic, Lord, or skeptical. Would you please help our unbelief, Lord? Come Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, so my name is Jonathan Tagg. It's great to be with you. I'm the senior pastor here at the River, and we're in our second week of Advent, as was mentioned. And last week, we talked about the return of Christ. We talked about the signs of what it will look like, and we checked boxes that indeed he is coming soon. Uh, I encourage you, if you did not hear last week's excellent sermon that was preached, to go to the website. Today, in our lectionary reading, and by the way, the lectionary is a a three-year cycle of readings for the church that much of the church does. Um, So the lectionary is about arrivals. And Psalms, Psalm 126, which we're going to look at, is about the arrival, uh, looking back and looking ahead. Uh, Malachi prophesies about an arrival of a messenger Uh, Corinthians, Paul warns about his coming arrival because they're boasting and they're arrogant, and he says, I'm going to come. And in Luke, John the Baptist announces the arrival of the Messiah. And uh, so these authors are writing in a variety of different contexts at drastically different times, but their message is very similar, and it's so fitting in Advent. Advent, the word from Latin, Adventus, means coming. And so we're talking about arrivals today. And so I'm going to use Psalm 126. So if you want to open a Bible, we encourage you. I'm not going to put Psalm 126 on the screen because we really encourage you to have like either a Bible or a phone or something. And then I'm going to draw from Malachi and Luke and I'm going to jump around a little bit. So you're going to have to stay, stay with me here. And I'm going to address three questions. And the first is what is What does the Word of God tell us today about who God is, about who we are, and thirdly, about how we should live? That's the structure. Psalm 126. It's part of what's called the Psalms of Ascent, which is Psalms 120 through 134. And these were sung as the Jews were were going up to Jerusalem, a descent of 2,474 feet. And so it was a good little hike up there. And they would sing these songs that were written for worship. And Psalm 126 says this, I'll read it one more time. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. 
verse 3, the Lord has done great things for us and we are filled with joy. Restore our fortunes, Lord. Like streams in the Negev, those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. And so Psalm 126, if we look at it, remembers when Zion, Israel, was released from captivity. And just as a reminder, there were at least two captivities. Actually, there were many, but uh, the ones he's referring to, to Assyria, captivity to Assyria, captivity to Babylon, the second one. And when they returned, they were like those who dreamed. Because both events were horrific, epic events, you know, where... Communities were destroyed, economies were destroyed, families were ripped apart, captives taken to all, you know, parts of the world that they did not know. And all this was for the discipline of Israel, for punishment for arrogance, but also to draw their hearts back to God. The purpose of punishment by God or discipline is always for repentance and rest. And so when the psalmist reports that they, when they returned to Jerusalem, they were like those who dreamed. It was like their mouths were filled with laughter, their tongues with joy. What draws to my mind is when captives are released from concentration camp, for example, and they're in shock, and eventually they're able to experience the freedom, and they're filled with this kind of inexpressible joy. So he wasn't exaggerating. And one of the main points of Psalm 126 is this. First, it was the Lord who released Israel from her oppressor. He said in verse 1, when the Lord restored Zion. Verse 3, the Lord has done great things for us. And sure, it was Cyrus who, who, you know, gave out an edict to say that it's, you know, I'm going to allow the Jews to return to Jerusalem. But The fact is, it was the Lord who moved Cyrus. It was the Lord who moved Pharaoh, remember, in Egypt? And the very fact that the Lord predicted the fact that the exile or the captivity would happen hundreds of years before it did, and that they would be returned before it actually happened, is proof that he was involved from the beginning to the end. Now I want to jump over to Malachi, testing our kind of cognitive bandwidth this morning. Because in Malachi, who wrote, by the way, in the 5th century BC, he was the last of the prophets. He wrote even in greater detail about the what this deliverer would look like. And so I'm going to put it on the screen here for you. So keep Psalm 126 where it is. Malachi 3 says this, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come. And as I keep that up, look with me at the pronouns in this passage. God himself says, I will send my messenger. In other words, I'm the one who's initiating this. It's my plan, my purpose, my idea. And he, this messenger, will prepare the way Before me, God speaking about God. Isn't that interesting? He will prepare the way before me. God speaking about God. And then God returns to the third person 
in verse 3. Then suddenly he said, the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. His temple noticed that. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come. And he describes one who will come to his temple. He's not talking about John the Baptist there. Because it's not John the Baptist's temple. This person is a messenger of the covenant, he says. A messenger is an ambassador, a representative. And the covenant he brings is a treaty, it's an alliance, it's a pledge from the one who wrote it. And he brings, this messenger brings this treaty or this pledge on behalf of the architect, the writer of it. And fast forward to the New Testament, and in the New Testament, when Jesus celebrates the Passover, which is a remembrance of the Exodus, again, liberation from from Egypt, Jesus says these words. He says, this is my blood of a new covenant shed for many for the forgiveness of their sins. In other words, Jesus is saying that he was the messenger and that that message was ratified not through his signature, but through his blood and with his death. Amazing. Jesus would go on to describe his Messiah and summarize his Messiahship in this way in Luke 4. He said, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight to the blind, to the oppressed free. Yes, it was and it is the Lord Jesus Christ who was and is our ultimate deliverer. Hallelujah. And to this day, he releases us. And how does he release us? Through his life and death and his resurrection. And so that's who God is. He is our deliverer. But secondly, Psalm 126 teaches this, that who we are is to be people of hope. Back to Psalm 126, if you kept it open. He says, restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. So he's not just looking back at something that happened. He's saying, Lord, there's still refreshing. There's still releasing. There's still redemption that needs to be done. And he uses this analogy of a stream in the Negev. When we went to Israel three years ago, we didn't get a chance to go to the southern part of Israel. But the Negev is the desert. It's dry and arid. It looks like parts of Moab, Utah, or any desert in the United States. If you've been there, it looks like the Grand Canyon. In, in many ways. I think Mike Weaver was there. You were there, right? Yep. Amazing place. And in the desert, there's this phenomenon called a wadi. Now, wadi is a dry riverbed that for the much of the year is barren, but periodically it will flood with life-giving water. What a sight it would be to, to stand there and see the water begin coming down either from Mount Hermon or from rain and to see life emerging from this riverbed where life was not. What a fitting metaphor that the psalmist would use a wadi or a, a stream in the Negev because Israel is a nation that is also without God, barren and lifeless and in need of water. The sovereign 
control of God needed to refresh his people. See, in Israel, just like today, water is everything. In Israel, without water, things are lifeless. Things are barren. I once had a friend, kid you not, my my roommate, I got a call from, from the mother of my roommate that he had died from dehydration. Isn't that tragic? In Israel, we were roommates in Israel, and he died from dehydration. Water is everything then, and it's everything now. Keep that in the back of your mind. Because in our lives today, we are in need of freedom and liberation and redemption. And that's because we need it physically. There are many stories in this congregation of the need for physical healing, emotional healing, mental healing, relational, social, sexual, and spiritual. And we, like Israel, are barren and lifeless without the watering of God. Water is everything. We need it as individuals, we need it as marriages, we need it as families, we need it as a church, we need it as a community. And Psalm 126 reminds us is, is that it's the Lord, and it's only the Lord who can provide what we need. And it's when we cry out, God, restore our fortunes, O God, like streams in the Negev, that God hears us, and that God comes. He promises to do it, and he cannot defy his character. But I want to go one step farther. If you look at Psalm 126 again, it goes into even more detail about what hope looks like. Because the psalmist says that hope is in the midst of suffering. Because who needs hope when things are going well? Do you understand? Things are going well? Like, no, I'm good. It's We need hope when we're suffering. Psalm 126.5 says, those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. According to the psalmist, we do the hard work of seeding and planting with our tears. Just in the same way that Israel had done their hard work of seeding and planting over the many, many times that they were in long and dark valleys. The reason we can go through, friends, these times with our faith intact is because like a farmer, we wait patiently. We seed and we wait, believing that there's a greater fruit and a greater harvest to come. And as many of you know, this is a, there's a joy that we can experience even in the midst of trials. Can anybody say that? Like that there is a joy, a presence of God that you can experience in the midst of the desert? There is an oasis because Jesus said there is a peace that passes understanding. Like, I don't understand why I have this joy, but I have this joy. Is anybody out there? Is there an amen at all? In the desert, there is joy. But secondly, there's a joy because we can know that we're going through this and we can know that at the end, there is a harvest of righteousness. There's a harvest of transformation that God is needing me And he's molding me and shaping me. And I'll just pause and say that, and remind us that we have a church, as a church, have been through a tremendously difficult three years, as many churches have been. 
I get together with pastors quite frequently, at least two to three times a year, with our diocese and with our larger group. I was at a synod recently, and one pastor has suffered physically. He suffered. His staff has suffered. His church has suffered. He had COVID. He almost died. And he told me with tears, like, this has been the worst three years of my life. And it's been the worst three years for his church. We've seen not one, but several losses of human life in our church. Very young and old. Constantly, there are people that we grow to love and they come to our church, oftentimes for education, and we disciple them and love them and care for them, and then we see them leave, right? And that's hard. Like many churches during COVID, we've just seen people disappear, and we wonder, where are these people? And that's so difficult because they are part of our church family. And some of our businesses and marriages and certainly children, whether young or adult children like mine, have been really disastrously impacted. But what I want to say is that we are fundamentally people of hope. And it's not like in that sentimental, secular sense where, you know, it's a human-made hope, like, oh, I'm just trying to stay optimistic, you know. Because that's not hope. That's like well-wishing. Because hope is always in a person. True hope is in God himself. And we can hope in God, not because we're just, you know, being optimistic about the future, but because God has proven himself faithful and loyal, and God has proven himself substantive and weighty. So friends, when you're going through stuff, because stuff happens, you know, same stuff, different day, the expressions, when you go through that stuff, don't just say, look at it with natural eyes. Think about it that way. You've been called by God. You are God's child. He loves you. He will never abandon you. And he will never forget you. He will, he, he will never not know your name. And because of that, he will always be loyal to you. Amen? I mean, he will always, he cannot defy his character. Romans 8.28 says it this way, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, for those who've been called according to this purpose. It doesn't say in some things. It doesn't say God said, well, I didn't know that was going to happen. I can't really handle that. It says in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. You are loved and beloved by God. And he has not forgotten you. Amen. And perhaps God is bringing a trial to you now where you think God doesn't know that this is happening. He's forgotten me. Maybe he's preoccupied. And God is bringing that to mind so that you know that he is with you. And he's never been more with you. Like he was with Israel in the wilderness. Theologian Wayne Grudem said this. Christians do not suffer accidentally or because of the irresistible forces of blind fate. Rather, they suffer according to God's will. Therein lies the knowledge that there is a limit to the suffering, both in its intensity as well as its duration. 
a limit that's been set and maintained by the God who is our creator, our savior, our sustainer, our father. Third and finally, as a result of all this, how are we to live? We're to live as people who constantly and consistently and perennially, I love using that word, perennially, it's just a cool word, usually just used for flowers, but it's it's so handy. We We ready ourselves for the arrival of Jesus. In the gospel reading today, Luke refers to Isaiah's prophecy of a Messiah that would come and make all things right. Just look at Luke 3 on the screen. He says, A voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in. Every mountain made low. Crooked roads made straight. Rough ways smooth. And all the people will see God's salvation. Now just a little bit of cultural context here. So before a dignitary would come, in Old Testament times and New Testament Bible times, before a dignitary would come, someone would go before the dignitary and make sure that the roads were apt, that the, that the lodging was procured, that the place was safe. You didn't want a dignitary coming in and bouncing all over the place and bouncing out of their chariot or whatever. And just think about what happens when a president comes to one of our cities. People come ahead of them, make sure it's safe, make sure there's good lodging and so forth. So John the Baptist was to come and prepare the way for the dignitary, but he doesn't come in the typical way. He doesn't come to prepare a room for Jesus and make sure all... He comes to prepare people's hearts. thats It's a spiritual purification and renovation. And the paths and the valleys and the mountains that John the Baptist is speaking to are not the actual roads and hills and byways, but hearts. And as if to paraphrase, John said to those people, make straight paths for him. And where there's divots in your lives and where there's things that need are crooked and need to make straight, make them straight. Make things right with God because God is coming. It's about arrivals. Well, of course, this has a really important application for us now. We're to make straight paths the paths for Jesus in our lives and where there's crookedness and where there's twistedness and where things aren't the way they're supposed to be and where there's bumps, we're supposed to make them smooth by the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit. And so Advent and Lent are two seasons that happen each year, but they represent what we are to be all year. And that is people with the grace of God and the help of the Holy Spirit who are making things right with God. But the problem is that Christmas tends to be full of stress. It's stress of busyness, getting things ready in our houses. It's stress of presents and budgets and, dare I say, family stress. Either we're going to them or they're coming to us. And that can take our sights away from the most important arrival, which is the arrival of Jesus, not just the first arrival, but the consistent, constant arrivals of Jesus today and eventually one day. The question I want you to ask yourself this is this, is it more important to me that I have a happy Merry Christmas or is it more important to prepare my life for Christ? 
Is it more important that I have, that my life is dominated by yuletide cheer or that my life is dominated by a love for God and a passion that will never end? What's most important, friend, to you? And I'll say that before you, we think that we're too unique, we have to remember Israel had the same proclivity to be excited about the idea of a Messiah without preparing the way for the Messiah. Because in Malachi, and bear with me here, I know that I'm continuing with this when I should be wrapping up, and I will wrap up soon. But Malachi 3, verse 1, we love verse 1. I will send my messenger who will prepare the way, blah, blah, blah. But look at verse 2 in Malachi. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. Listen to this. He will purify the Levites. That's the worshipers. And refine them with gold and silver. The Lord will have men who will bring offerings in righteousness. And the offerings of Judah and Jerusalem will be acceptable to the Lord. So, of course, according to Malachi, not only is Jesus our liberator, but he's our refiner. And he turns up the heat in your life and in my life. Because he's not just a liberator. He is a purifier. And he does this, and here's where I'm circling to end. He does this because there's pretentiousness in us. We are just naturally at times pretentious. Because there are times where offerings are not sacrificial, they're tokenistic. And I'm not just talking about money here. I'm talking about offering our lives to him. We sing the songs, but do we live the life that he's called us to live? Vows are made, but vows are easily broken. Outside, we appear devoted, but inside, are we devoted? This week, I ran into a Tim Keller quote. Yes, Tim Keller. Because I'm so jealous of Tim Keller. He's so good. But he put into the question of our spiritual integrity. And he said this. Jesus says the infallible test of spiritual integrity is your private prayer life. And so what's your life and what's my life with God when nobody's looking? What's the reality of your relationship with the Lord? I don't say that to guilt you or to fear you, but just to cause you to greater devotion. And I want to say personally, this is not merely theoretical for me. It was just months ago when the Lord began to speak to me and say, Jonathan, you and your devotional life is tokenistic. You come, you read a scripture, you say a prayer, you check the box, you feel better about yourself, but you really don't want to be with me. And he was speaking, as he does, with candor and gentleness. You really don't linger with me. You really don't spend time with me. And the the dominant illustration that kept coming to mind over this period of time was of, like, having a date with somebody. Okay? You have a date. Perhaps you have a date with your wife, girlfriend, boyfriend, whatever. You have a date, and it's short. You don't spend much money. 
You go and you're on your phone. (laughs) You're distracted. You're not present. How does your girlfriend or boyfriend or how does your spouse feel? Oh, it's tokenistic. You just wanted to be able to say you had a date, but you really didn't linger. And that's what the Lord was saying to me. He began to show me that and I began to confess it and say, I'm sorry, you're so worth my time. You're so, you're so strong. I need your strength. You're so, you're so loving and so gentle. I need your gentleness and I need your wisdom. I'm sorry, I've been a fool. I began to confess it. And guess what? That confession began to bring change. And I've had some beautiful times with the Lord where he has brought me to tears over the last month because I've missed him. I've needed that watering and that refreshing. And here's where I'm going to end, friend. The most important spiritual battle you can fight is the battle to be with him. Are you hearing me? It's the battle to be with him. The test of your spiritual integrity is your private prayer life. That's the most important priority is to be with him and everything else, who you are and what you do and how you treat other people's flows from that primary relationship. And Jesus loves you so much. He's so jealous. He turns the heat up in your life, not because he's mean or angry. He allows us to go through trials so that, like Israel, we will come desperately back to him. He is our redeemer, our freer, our liberator. He is our hope, and therefore we are people of hope. With the help of the Holy Spirit, let us make straight paths for him. Would you please kneel for prayer if you are able? Thanks for joining us for this sermon from the River Anglican Church. You can find us on the web at therivernrv.org, also on Facebook, and you can join us in person if you like on Sunday mornings at 915 at 110 Roanoke Street East, Blacksburg, Virginia, 24060. We hope to see you again next week.